Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The studies have shown that playing games is awesome. Um, <laughs> okay, and, good studies. And that, and that you're happy playing the games. But the studies have shown that your satisfaction with uh, playing the games declines in your mid to late 20s. And then it starts to become less positive and wholesome and fun. And there are a lot of people that are moving on. And by the way, like I've seen this in people I'm close to. Um, and the main reason for your all of a sudden clicking in and being like, okay, like I'm in the game last. This happened to me too. Like I was gaming, gaming, and then eventually I was like, oh, no. And you know, like the single biggest thing for me was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and date a woman, find or a relationship. Women. Yeah. Um, and there dating. was an instinctive part of me that was like, I don't know if they're going to be into the gaming thing. I mean, some women do accommodate it. Yeah. So it drove me in a particular direction at, at that point. And so the studies have shown that this is a very consistent pattern. The social perks and incentives to not be gaming all the time are pretty high at a certain age. Right? Uh, and, and so that's the threshold time where if someone then ventures out into the real world and let's say they find something completely unwelcoming and inhospitable, then they'll be like, all right. Fuck that, and then go back to gaming, and right. then and then the gaming satisfaction will also decline over time, and then you know like this is not a great track. Right. Um, when they go out into the world and they're like, okay, hey, what's out here? Like, you know, do I have opportunities, relationships, progression? And they get that, then they're like, okay, like I can I can follow this. So yes. w- when that boy or man reaches out and tries to head down that direction, uh, what do they find? Yes. And if they don't find, I mean, if they put themselves out there and they find themselves rejected or embarrassed or question their masculinity or man- manhood, whatever it is, they fail, then it seems a lot safer to go back to video games. Sure. This week on Forward, the launch of Lobby 3. What the heck is that? You can find out. Also, Trucker Convoy in Canada, video games and boys. So much more this week on Forward. Zach, we are back and we are announcing something big and exciting the arrival of Lobby 3. We've been on the grind. We have been. Yeah. You're always kind of on a grind, but I've been. we've been doing some behind the scenes grinding on this. Working on it. And so people who've worked with me for a while know that sometimes when I'm doing something, I'm excited. I'm just like, hey, we're doing this. Yes. Um, in this case, we've been working on it for a number of weeks and months and haven't talked about it openly until now. So what the heck is Lobby 3? Lobby 3 is 
our effort to help explain Web3 technologies and their potential to combat poverty to the folks in D.C., the regulators, the lawmakers, to make sure that they don't do something that uh, stifles this innovation before it can even really uh, get going or reach its full potential. Um, super pumped about it, and I, I want to retrace my steps through uh, the last number of years. We're getting into crypto. We, uh, we're entering the metaverse. <laughs> is anyone surprised? No. If, if the headline is Andrew Yang gets into Web3, I, no I've sort of shocked. had one foot in, one foot out for a while, though. Yeah. though as a political figure, I didn't go too far in because... Uh, you know, um, it was going to be over the heads of a lot of voters and like uh, mm -hmm. there were a bunch of other things. But my first major interaction with this community was speaking at conferences mm -hmm. and events when I was running for president. Consensus was one of the first ones, right? Yes. Something around there. Yeah. There was a blockchain for good conference I mm -hmm. attended in San Francisco and meeting these people. Uh, first, it was like these are these are my people. It was like my tribe. They were your people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was very optimistic, entrepreneurial. Yeah, like, <laughs> and nine out of ten of them were for some version of UBI. Yeah, as as well. And I would say the vast majority were like Yang Gang or Yang Gang adjacent. Although the vast majority probably didn't vote. No offense, <laughs> crypto community, we love you. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you had voted, we might have be in a different. You might be having this conversation at Gracie Mansion. Well, there might not have I been that know. many in New Hampshire, Iowa, yeah, too. <laughs> but so my interactions with the community were always very energizing and invigorating. It became evident that if you're trying to combat poverty, this is maybe the single greatest opportunity that exists today mm -hmm. because you've had hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value uh, and thousands and thousands of jobs generated over the last number of months. Really, uh, surprising just about anyone uh, if you were to rewind the clock gosh not even that many years right. I mean, you know five years yep I'd say so a couple of things a lot of folks so I found that people either turned on by crypto or been t or have been turned off right where you're like this is the greatest thing in the world and they're down a rabbit hole and they're starting nft projects and all this stuff or they're like, screw this. It's a bubble. I don't understand well, it. Here's what do you think? Yeah. So a lot of people interact with it in a very superficial way. Mm. Uh, the potential of the blockchain has been clear for a while where imagine you have, this is a technical term, but they talk about it as a distributed ledger. Um, but let's imagine that you had a slew of interactions that no one can affect or alter mm -hmm. so that you can trust everything. Mm -hmm. And that if anyone does make any kind of move, then it's evident for all to see. Correct. So if you had that kind of system, you could vote securely. You could have a completely different, broadly accessible financial system. Yep. You could have a truly distributed internet that's not controlled by a few megacorps. You would take out a lot of middlemen. You could get rid of a lot of accountants and lawyers. A lot of leeches. Because yeah. there, there are a lot of major professional services firms that they're uh, primary value is papering up a transaction that if you could document it on the blockchain, then problem solved. I, I actually remember this. So I was a, an unhappy corporate attorney for five months. Mm -hmm. You were in investment banking. Yep. So management, yeah. I remember there was a big acquisition that mm. uh, we were papering up. And at the end of the acquisition, a partner at the law firm had to sign something saying, hey, this is uh, this is legally acceptable. And that partner joked with me that that, converse, that 
signature was worth a million bucks because really it was this very high-end law firm putting its name on the fact that this is kosher, this is legal, right. everything's going to be fine. Like that, that firm placing its brand and reputation behind the legality of the transaction was what was being paid for in many ways. Yes. So you end up not needing any of that because right. the, you could see for yourself that yes. this is legit. Yes. So when you talk about the potential of this technology, it, it is vast and has been for quite some time. Yes. Now, in terms of the applications and implementations to date, have we reached that level? No. Nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. That's uh, what's exciting. And so what you're seeing now is a bunch of applications that people can look at and say, um, well, you know, I'm uh, un unsure whether this uh, is going to be what's built on this technology long term. Mm -hmm. it, it's like a lot of other new technologies where there are going to be a slew of applications and implementations. Mm -hmm. Think even for those of you who remember this stuff, when the Internet first came out, there were like a ton of different websites. Mm -hmm. And then when the bubble popped, a lot of those websites went away, but you had some game-changing companies uh, yes. like Amazon and PayPal and others that, you know, stood the test of time. Correct. Um, now, there, there's already been a couple of boom-bust cycles um, mm -hmm. in crypto, but there are going to be some game-changing companies that come out of this 100%. Yes. And it will be, this isn't going away. That's like, that. what I would say is this, is you and I, we were running for president when like the early adopters were really getting in, right? You can still say it's the early adoption phase a bit, but they had Super Bowl commercials, not that early anymore. Um, but when we were running, a lot of folks were getting into this and we're like, this is cool, not sure what it is, that sort of thing. And then we've been spending the last, definitely last four months, like hard, like very intently in this space, um, intensely in this space, but probably last six to eight months, like really, um, exploring it, like at least casually. Oh, and and talking to leaders in it and trying to figure out, okay, what are the problems? What are the needs? Yes. And the single biggest problem that we heard over and over again was, hey, we're concerned that the legislators and regulators don't get us. Now Washington, D.C. is going to mess us up. Yeah. I mean, there was some <laughs> language in the infrastructure bill that defined broker-dealer in a way that encompassed essentially everyone under the sun. It made mm -hmm. no sense. Uh, and if that were implemented, then it, it would really... Uh, offshore a lot of this industry, which is exactly the opposite of what you want. Right. Um, so we heard over and over again uh, that these stories aren't being told, the uh, use cases aren't being explained properly. Uh, there's a caricature of both the people in the industry and what it's being used for. So the caricature is, uh, hey, this is all being used for illicit drug deals uh, and human trafficking. Or and the just people some that are, rich kid that looks like me to sell his monkey photos. And the people that are using it are uh, either bad actors or tech bros uh, or um, people who haven't, you know, had any needs. Um, meanwhile, in reality, when you start interacting with folks who are part of this community, there are mm -hmm. a lot of artists who are being compensated for their creations in a way that was completely not possible before. And by the way, it has changed their lives from you know, living hand to mouth or even in some cases living in their car. I mean, you've got extreme cases where people are, yeah, homeless to like either millionaires, but you have a lot of artists. They're like, I'm able to fund my lifestyle now. Yeah. Um, that's like the more average case than the extreme ones that we hear about sometimes. Yeah. And so there were a number of things that really were hand in hand with 
the presidential campaign, where yeah. one of the reasons why we were so pro universal basic income is that it could give rise to a creative economy. And that's what's happened mm -hmm. uh, with Web3 in many cases. Uh, we also wanted to find a way to monetize different types of positive social actions. Yes. Um, because, and this is linked even to the conversation we've been having around uh, men and boys and jobs and a bunch of other things, where if you had a system of uh, tokens and rewards and incentives for me volunteering in my community, helping my neighbor, taking uh, care of grandma, taking care of grandma, working out, like doing something positive for my mental health, like, you right. know, wh whatever it is, um, then you can create uh, a new network and also a set of structures that help give people, men in particular, mm -hmm. a degree of reinforcement and purpose and fulfillment. Yes. And so this was something that I actually, and this is funny on the presidential. Um, so uh, it's in my book, and a lot of you read my book, uh, The War on Normal People, and I called it Digital Social Credits. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and by the way, Zach is laughing because early in the campaign, he was like, you're not allowed to talk about digital social credits ever again. <laughs> um, because the Asian guy talking about digital social credits just seems like, you know, frankly, China social engineering and like yeah. blah, blah, blah. You were also already far out. You know what I'm saying? You had already the free money guy or UBI. You had a bunch of new ideas. And then this one was like so far out. And I, we understood why you did it, like if you ever talked to you. But it was just another thing you had to explain. Yeah. So clearly the idea of digital social credits and tokens, it, it's it's already happening. Yes. Now uh, in the metaverse with Web3 and crypto. So, uh, so there were a bunch of things that were super aligned about the vision. And when the leaders in this community were to identify a need, some of them would say, you know what, uh, Andrew, you'd actually be a really good fit to help make this case because you were like a political actor who has relationships on both sides of the right. aisle and a public profile. And what many of them did not know, but now they do know, is that uh, we had started an advocacy organization in D.C. that had been doing this sort of work yeah. around anti-poverty measures like cash relief and uh, enhanced child tax credit. Yep. Uh, and so it really is a perfect fit because this can be the next big step in fighting poverty. Yep. If, and if we're able to demonstrate what these technologies can do to enable, for example, like a, a poor uh, neighborhood in Ohio or Washington, D.C. to get access to yep. financial services in a way that they couldn't before. And by the way, not just to access, but I have some buying power. Right. So we looked at this space and we're like, how can we help? And the first one's like, well, we could start a company here and do some cool stuff. And let's, I'll be honest, like, I think we do have both of us personally and together, like there's some cool business ideas, like the sky's the limit here, new frontier, very exciting. But the biggest thing that was missing was like, that's where everybody's going, that well, let's call it human greed or interest there. And what's missing is this, whoa, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, you could bank the world on blockchain in a way we've never been able to do before. You can create value out of almost nothing the right way and incentivize certain behaviors and create communities. You're talking about, I mean, you're talking about tech that eliminates poverty. This is it, right? This is the closest we're going to get probably in our lifetime. Like, who knows, right? It, it can eliminate bureaucracy, too. And we all yeah. know how much I dislike bureaucracy. That. Yeah. So, uh, so, <laughs> so that's where we went. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, there's a, a need and opportunity. And we are filling it with Lobby 3. So if you are... In the Web3 community, please do check out Lobby3, join the DAO, 
uh, join our Discord, and uh, let's make the case together. If everything I just said is Greek to you, do not worry about it. Don't worry. <laughs> just know that we are trying to make it so that some of these technologies end up improving people's lives in the real world as quickly as possible. So we are going to, Andrew is going to do, I'll help if I can, but Andrew's going to do a, probably a big circuit around like getting this to, we're going to go to the crypto community, right? We're going to Denver this week to the ETH conference. We're going to go uh, on a number of shows and podcasts and Twitter spaces. Um, we believe in meeting people where they are, right? Um, but generally speaking, I want to make sure I summarize this. So before we move is that we're going to make sure Web3 is reflective of the community voices and the people's voices from an anti-poverty, eradicate poverty lens and perspective. And so it's lobby3.io. You can check it all out. It's going to be fantastic. It launched today. Super exciting. Um, and we could do a whole episode on it. We probably will get Carly on to do some dive-ins, but um, we're not going to bore you with everything because if you hate crypto, we don't want you to unsubscribe. Or, you know, it's just not part of your life. Yeah. No worries. Or if you hate lobbying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Point. It's a very wholesome project. I'm super excited about it. It has the potential to change millions of lives for the better. Yeah. And I think you're like the crypto, the Web3 space doesn't have a lot of politicians like in there. Marco Rubio came out and was like, I love crypto. I'll be your crypto guy. It just wouldn't work. Right. I do think you have a unique role that you can yeah, and, play. And, and part of it, too, is you want to avoid it being politicized in a particular way. Yeah. And this day and age, unfortunately, if like someone comes out for it, then someone on this side will be like, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, so, so, keep so it behind so, the scenes. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd like to just try and make the case in a positive, wholesome way that, look, this is going to change people's lives for the better. It already is. Yep. So lobby3.io. It's going to be fun. Check it out. Join the Discord. We'll be in there. Carly's in there. A bunch of friends are in there. Andrew Wang is in there. A couple, let's call it crypto innovators and Web3 innovators. It'll be fun. It's time to make the metaverse safe for innovation keep all of that value generation right here in the US of A where it belongs. <laughs> Don't offshore it to parts unknown. Let's keep it here. You give this community a voice in Capitol Hill the right way. And the sky is, I mean, objectively, the sky's the limit, in my opinion. Well, right? right now, this is one of the biggest risks overhanging the whole industry. It's like you look up and be like, uh, what will regulations be? We're well past the point where anyone, in my opinion, can expect a lack of regulation or taxation, Correct. like it's coming. So the question is, is it going to come in a benign, transparent way that balances the concerns? That's thoughtful. Yeah, you know, because you have two, two major things. One is, <laughs> uh, is reduce risk, and the other is fuel innovation mm -hmm. uh, and growth in new offerings. Yep. And so if you get that balance wrong, um, you can destroy a ton of value. The entire industry does have uh, in my opinion, like a you know, like a discount or risk is associated with it because people don't know mm -hmm. um, point. where the regulatory could drop to zero at any point re right? regime, so. or it could be you know very very extreme where the government's like, hey, this stuff's illegal. Yep. Um, so there's so much opportunity to be had with this technology. Uh, it, it's super exciting. Can't wait to help it reach its potential if we can. Um, but the single biggest thing we can do is just. Uh, convey a broader, more realistic sense of yeah. both the technology and the community to people in DC. We're gonna dive in. And like, I think we'll be able to educate some of this community about how lobbying works and from our experiences and, and the experiences of the organizations we work with, but also we'll learn from them realistically too. Um, but if you're wondering 
is this worth it? I think the question to ask yourself is, did Washington, D.C. get Web 2 right? Absolutely not. Like, we're still reaping the or paying the price for either ineffective or bad regulation uh, from the, let's call it the Facebooks and, and Googles and data sharing and things like, or lack of <laughs> data privacy and things like that. So um, if Web3 is that much more innovative and scalable, then the consequences will be that much more worse and, and more ineffective, um, more painful. So that's like where my head's at. It's like if they screwed it up last time, we need to, we need to at least try to prevent them from doing that. Again. Well, well the, the glory of Web3 is that it naturally enables decentralization. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's one reason why the government generally has this reflexive um, overreaction towards it. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, again, you just want to balance things. Like, are there risks associated with it? Yes. Should there be taxation? Yes. Uh, um, but do you also want to make sure that builders can build and innovators can innovate and the jobs stay here? If you look at the risk reward, it's like the reward is enormous. Um, and so you just have to try and have uh, an intelligent way of both uh measuring and managing the risks uh, as quickly as you can the reward changes everything that's what this will well, be the rewards like you know it's infinite it's, it's yeah it, it could easily be trillions of dollars yeah millions of jobs new way of millions life. of lives improved yes you, um doing things without having to wait for the government to do them like that's um you know and and that's where the government participation is is key it's like they're like if, if they're not involved what do they say if you're not at the table you're on the menu This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You know what he's talking about? The trucker convoy in Canada. Yes, because there's too much going on in the news on this. Who would and I have don't know thought, what the hell's going on. Who well, would have now, thought that Canada would beat the United States to a trucker convoy? The great trucker riots that you predicted happened in, in 2017, Canada. 2018 <laughs> are happening in Canada. Not for the, the same US. reason. Never would have guessed it. Though it, it does turn out that a significant uh, percentage of the resources have come from the U.S., FYI. Yeah. You mean the donations? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's some solidarity happening. So the Canadian government changed their rules around uh, vaccination, saying, 
hey, if you're a trucker and you're crossing back into Canada, you need to be vaccinated. Right. Uh, you can't come back. You can't if come you're back. You're not vaccinated, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, so there are a number of people that uh, hate this rule. Yeah. Um, now, bear in mind the vast majority of truckers are vaccinated. Correct. And we have this rule in the U.S. It's like the rule itself apparently is not the root. It's the the catalyst, but there's other issues besides this specific rule. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a number of truckers have protested. Um, their demands are well beyond this vaccine mandate yes. though like it, it's generally you could consider it something like of an anti-government protest yeah. and it's like eight to ten thousand truckers or so at least yeah a lot person. of them brought their families mm -hmm. uh so that they're snarling up traffic they are disrupting international trade routes uh, i have been to the ambassador bridge which is the bridge between michigan and canada it's the largest right. single uh, it's like ottawa artery right? it's right there um, it, they're, they're main and they're mainly in downtown Ottawa, and then they're blocking basically Michigan and or Detroit and Ottawa's like main trade route, right? So yeah, and my, my friend Stephen Marsh is was pro, uh, reporting directly from the protest. Oh, was well. he really? Yeah, he oh, that's he, cool. he lives in Toronto, and and there Got are for him. Uh, protesters right there. Okay, so the protests have been going on for a while. They've been extraordinarily disruptive. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada has something of a different interaction than we do, where Virtually no mainstream Canadian politician is for this. None. None. It's it's not it's like tiny, you can imagine it here in the U.S. where it'd be polarized. And even now, I mean, a bunch of the mainstream uh, conservative outlets like Fox and, and whatnot are essentially pro-truckers. Yep. Um, but th th there's not an equivalent up in Canada. Uh, I think the disapproval rating of these protests in like the 70 to 75 percent range like mm -hmm. most canadians are like what are you doing it's a more liberal country right generally like compared to the united states so yeah that. it's got a different set of relationships where the yeah. state has a bigger role in your yes. life yes um so i'll give you an example when covid hit the canadian government was like hey let's give people some money mm -hmm. um but it, it wasn't the way that we did it where they pumped it out through the irs they literally like set up a website and was like want some money like take it <laughs> yeah you know, like, like they, they had that kind of relationship with their people where if you were in need, you could go and get it. Mm -hmm. And they just issued money hand right. over fist. Uh, the health care provided by the government. Yep. Um, education, free through college, mm -hmm. you know, if you go to, to these universities. So it, it's a much bigger part of your life. As a result, um, I, I think that the general sentiment against uh, these protests is much higher than maybe would be here in the U.S. even. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to suggest 70 to 75 percent uh, disapproval of the, these protests is pretty high. Do we have anything in this country? Like that UBI you could get 70 to 75 percent yeah. on? Yeah, it's like it'd be tough. <laughs> um, <Wow>. So <laughs> what does it all mean? Um, the first thing is the direct impact of these protests themselves, which, mm -hmm. by the way, uh, are significant enough where they're screwing up the supply chain for a whole number of things. Yeah, um, it's not great. I, I had a friend who had his purchased item, which was significant. It was like an automobile or something already like delayed as a result of this and, and things like that. Like that, like it, it's having mm -hmm. an impact you've already. Got, you've got companies cutting shifts and stuff, too. It's not just people ordering. It's folks that make these products. If yeah. you can't get certain parts, they don't try and build it that day. And people lose shifts. They lose income. Yeah. Like, what, what Will there be 
uh, copycat convoys in other parts of the world completely. There already are. Yeah, there's there, a few. There, they're there not major, are. but it's like there's one in New Zealand. There's one um, I was reading about. I mean, they're small and they're not major yet, but yes, there will. And there haven't really happened in the U.S. yet, although there's rumblings. Yes. So so, yeah. so that that's uh, another phenomenon that I think you can foresee. Like mm-hmm. if you were to say, will there be a significant uh, protest uh, in America that's mm-hmm. led by truckers in a similar way over the next you know, like, you know, number of months, you'd have to say almost certainly yes. Mm -hmm. Canada's response to it um, has been interesting, too, where they're completely against uh, acceding to any of the demands. And most people just want them to break it up. Um, So they're, they're taking some relatively extreme measures where Trudeau is relying upon something around like a War Powers Act, essentially. Yes. Saying, uh, we're going to do whatever it takes, including uh, freezing assets, uh, potential uh, physical removal, uh, and the public is behind him. Yeah, it's they're not fucking around in terms of their stance against this. And I mean, they mean the Canadian government. Now, do you have a sense of what they're protesting? Because it's not just that mandate for truckers. It seems to be a little bit bigger, but still related to COVID. A sense of marginalization among people who feel like their point of view is ignored, mm-hmm. people who are very passionately uh, against being forced to vaccinate, yep. it, you know, and so that that's the truckers directly. Now, one of the things that is happening that is very, very upsetting to me is that there are some people with very extreme points of view who are among the thousands of truckers who are flying no hate symbols and the rest so of it. there was a small group of swastika swinging confederate flag swinging protesters and then they did i think they pulled out about 13 maybe a few more weapons from oh. was this i mean of eight thousand, not a lot but still so, so one of the things that happens in these um episodes is that you will seize upon someone among the group and say see this is a bunch of mm-hmm. uh hate-filled uh yes extremists with weapons and the rest of it. And by and large, according to Stephen, who's physically been proximate to these things, they're peaceful. Kids are walking by. Like, this is not like, you know, yeah. uh, like something where, uh, in a way, you could try and be like, it's, it's still Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. Quick aside, but I think it's important. What's the difference between what you're talking about here? You've got a group of truckers and trucker supporters, eight to 10,000. And there's a small subset that are fucking racist, right? Well, one of the when things you- that happens is anytime you have a conflict uh, or uh, demonstration or protest or, or of some kind, extreme elements will show up. Oh, the, they come out of the woodwork. Like it's, yeah. it's like why weird people are out on Halloween too. It's like you can get the opportunity for the crazies to come out, they're gonna take it, right? This is why you know it's gonna happen in the US in some form because Correct. as soon as someone plants a flag, there are some people be like, oh, it's go time. Right. So you have this, um, and this is called, let's call it, this is what the right looks like when they have a, a protest. But, but and, and this is in many ways the strains you have to pull apart, which is that uh, there are going to be some people with very, very extreme ideologies that are looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but And so your temptation then is to validate whatever the, yes. the genesis is of the protest and say, well, you're all terrible. Right. Um, where they can, there can be the seeds of something very reasonable and, and even... Uh, sympathetic. Yes. Uh, but then it ends up getting twisted, particularly by news media accounts. Now, let me ask, is this similar to what we saw with the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter protests, where you had a large swath of people that were for like 
or against police brutality. Like this has to stop. We need fundamental change and systematic justice reform in this country. But then you also had people looting and burning buildings throughout. And the right was saying, well, look at these assholes. They're lighting our stores on fire and we can't stand for this. Um, and the left was saying they're mostly vast, peaceful, vast majority peaceful protest, yeah. right? Same thing. Like what's the, the destruction of property sounds like a line there. Like to me, I like saying things are the same, but I do like having a line, you know, where a swastika, that's fucked up, but you're always gonna have that fucked up person. Are they hurting anyone? Are they destructing? Like, where's that? And on the left, I don't mind crazies being out there per se, but if they're lighting things on fire and destroying property and businesses, well, well that's one of the like problems is that if you're ideologically opposed, uh, you tend to look at it and then attribute whatever the heck the yeah, negative version side is that way, uh, right. of it. Yeah. Um, where, you know, uh, most of the people who are showing up to these protests in Canada are apparently, again, perfectly peaceful. A lot of them have kids yes. with them themselves. Um, so, you know, th there are. Um, uh, I'm sure people that if you met in person, you'd be like, oh, this person's like reasonable and sympathetic. Yep. Uh, the same is going to be true here in the U.S. There's going to be some legitimate gathering and then it's going to become dark pretty quick. To me, it's kind of what you're saying. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like what's the core here, right? Like what are the majority of people upset about? And like what's the common ground? And I, you know, and that's and on both both sides, right? Barry Weiss has a Substack. So Barry, you were on her pod six months ago or so. Um, but she did. She's one of the best folks right now. I find in doing like objective journalism in written form, and she finds other journalists that are great too. But she had a Substack um, that we'll we'll plug here. But it's Rupa. I'm gonna. I'm for, apologies to her for. I think it's her for, for um, messing up the last name. But Subramania. Um, but the the article on her. Com on her common sense substack was called what the truckers want and she interviewed they interviewed dozens probably hundreds it said you know they talked to hundreds of truckers and protesters there and you know the takeaway was there are plenty of anti-vaxxers and people are like that but a lot of them are very reasonable people feel hurt feel left behind and think this is the only thing they can do how do we avoid this? How do you solve this? What is the government to do? What are you thinking? I, I think the, the single biggest takeaway is that if it can happen in Canada, it can certainly happen just about anywhere. Uh, oh, that's true. And, and that if <laughs> and that if it's going to happen at this scale in Canada, um, so that the U.S. prides itself on doing things bigger and better, uh, I think we're going to do it bigger and better. But when I say better, I mean worse. I mean bigger and but worse. Like better from a like a sensational point of view. Well, that there yeah. will be an order of magnitude <laughs> yeah. uh, larger um, gathering. What do you think on this? Is um, this is from a guy who wrote about trucker convoys in 2017? Yeah, You're somewhat of an expert, oddly. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be because we're automating the jobs away. I did not pre predict that it was going to be because there's a pandemic that they didn't want to be vaccinated against. This is where I struggle because I think there, if you have a certain type, and this is a small case, I don't know how big the population is, but if you have a medical condition where you are like high risk, high variance for a variety of reasons, getting the vaccine yourself is a risk, right? It's a risk, it could kill you, it could have massively negative side effects, things like that. And that does not make you an anti-vaxxer. You can be the most liberal person in the world, right? And you can have that. But if that's the case, and you work in a corporate office who has a, ma a vaccine policy, you've kind of got two options. You're gonna get publicly shamed because and not like so bad out the beginning, but you're gonna have to wear your mask and everyone else won't be. And there are going to be more and more restrictions put on. You'll feel awkward, you'll feel isolated. You'll feel like 
uh, I guess, a Trump supporter, right? Like no amount of virtue signaling can make people feel like uh, you're not an anti-vaxxer and not on their team. Or you live like, so you either live like that as option one or option two, you have to find a new job. Like you have to either work from home or, or quit, right? Um, and that's a number of the folks that in, in Barry Weiss's, in that Substack we're talking about where people like, I feel like my lifestyle has changed just because I couldn't, and many of them couldn't or didn't want to get the vax, whether it's religious reasons or medical reasons. To me, that can fuel like irrational thoughts around it. But there's a core rationality there that does make sense to me as someone who's pro-vaccine. What are your thoughts on how you avoid that, prevent that, handle that? Um, some governments, the, there's a small government right now in Canada that's like, look, we're just going to come to a truce here. Like, we're going to get rid of this. Saskatchewan, right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a city, sorry, right? Um, or like a province. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think on that? Because, I, you know, this is... This is kind of the crux of it. I think you get rid of that, you can actually diffuse a lot of this bomb. Well, the, the, the tough part is if you are a company or you're a state, your interest is in trying to maximize adoption. And so if yeah. you start being like, hey, reasonable exception uh, will be made, your adoption rate is going to be lower. Yes. Uh, and, so you got to go. And so your incentives are to be like, look, we're just going to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, and there are a significant number of people who can be moved that direction. Um, and then there are going to be some people that are like, doesn't matter what you say or do, I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. do it. Um, and so th this happened in New York City. I don't know if you saw the story where uh, there was a mandate for city employees. Yeah. Um, and then they j Eric Adams just announced he fired a bunch. I think it was something like 1,400, yeah. 1,500 uh, were fired. Um, now, one of the byproducts of the policy was that another, you know, several thousand who didn't want to get vaccinated did get vaccinated right. because they were like, hey, I don't feel I don't, like not getting it. fired. Like, yeah. it's not worth it. And then they got vaccinated. Um, and then you had these people lose their job. So in a way, the policy achieved its goal, which is, hey, we got adoption up. Yep. Um, and then there are these uh, 1,400 people that were like, doesn't matter. Not, job not worth it to me. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I will go. Um, so if you're a government uh, or a very large company, mm -hmm. um, these measures – make policy sense and it, it's easier to increase adoption if you take that line than if you're like well let's do it case by case because case by case a lot of people will be like well you know uh, i i don't want to do it and mm -hmm. here are some reasons why and uh, et cetera, et cetera. You had a prediction this year, which I think I agree. I agree with that COVID will be over by the end of the year. Yes, but over was loosely defined, right? And, and intentionally, right? We could define over. In oh, many there will still be COVID. My oh yeah. My <laughs> yeah, point yeah. Is it's like, just that it's just that we're we're um, you know we're we're not going we're to be. <laughs> oh, you know we we won't be uh, restricting our own behaviors as much. Um, you know we will be gathering. Are we creating? a new subset of extremes on the left and the right here. Like, are there going to be folks that forever or the next 10, 20 years just always wearing masks and then on the on the right, like never doing anything the government says? Like, are we, um, or is this something, maybe it's because it's the attention economy, like something else will become the boogeyman in a year or so. We're certainly radicalizing people right now in a way that's yeah. going to last. And we're traumatizing people in a way that's going to last. Yeah. I mean, both those things are true. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, what uh, the, you know, one thing I'll say yeah. too, as an Asian American. Yeah. Asians were wearing masks uh, pre-COVID routinely. I don't yeah. know if you've ever been over there. Yeah. So oh, and, and, and not in the United States. Well, some in the United States, but mainly in... Mainly in, in Asia, right? Yeah. where 
Uh, Asian just wore a mask for giggles. Um, <laughs> well, uh, SARS was a real thing, right? So, so, yeah. So, so here are the reasons why Asians wore masks. Um, one is that some of the places had a lot of pollution, so yeah, that's good. true. The smog. Right? Um, uh, another is that it is considerate to your neighbors in any um, moment in time because, hey, if I have a cold, I can't infect you. That's true. Uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah, so so that these were the the reasons um, why. Uh, also, I think Asian culture prioritized less that I'm, like you know, greeting you with a smile kind of thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's not you know it's just not as big a deal. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in Asian culture, masks are commonplace anyway. Like if you fast forward here in the United States, X years from now, like there'll be a subset of people wearing masks. Just for love sure. masks. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. I can't hate it personally. A lot of kids don't it. even remember not wearing a mask. Yeah, that makes sense. Which, by the way, terrible for their development, terrible for their social Awful. development. Yeah. Um, do kids in Asia wear the masks, or it's only adults, mainly adults? I think kids wear them too. If you're like okay. on the subway, and whatnot. Not great. Um, yeah, the numbers on this are are awful. And then, I don't know. If you're a kid, that was the other thing. We watched you watch Super Bowl. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, you live tweeted the Super Bowl. It was fun. Um, congratulations to our folks in LA. You probably didn't know you had a football team till yes till last Sunday, but we don't care. Congrats. Sorry for the Cincinnati fans. Um, if you're a kid in LA, you've got a mask requirement in your school, but you watch Super Bowl and see all of these celebrities and people and your leaders, if you're you know old enough to understand who the mayor of LA is, not wearing masks in there. Um, does that teach them the wrong message? I don't know if you talked to your boys about this and. Um, huh. things like that. I think we are past the point where masks in schools make sense yeah. uh, from the data. Um, the fact is that kids risk themselves very low. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a teacher and want to be protected from transmission, it's more important that you're wearing a mask than mm -hmm. that the kids are wearing a mask. Right. Uh, and it does have negative impacts on kids' ability to learn and their social development. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think we should move beyond masks in yeah. schools. Uh, but you know that there are individual communities that are making a different choice. I am open to certain communities having, it's like anything. It's why we have states, right? Like if certain communities want to make their own laws on that and you, people do have relative flexibility to move school districts and places, although it, it gets ugly, you know, as you, as you spread out, you know, anyway, the, the last takeaway on the, the Canadian trucker convoy is that I've read a lot of press that it's a far right movement, and I don't think that's fully accurate, and, or it's not particularly just an anti-vax movement. It's a anti-vax mandate movement, I believe, but doesn't seem, I think, I'm wondering if you agree with me, it doesn't seem that it's far right. It may be conservative, I think, based on government. You know, it depends, it depends on how you define far right. I, mm -hmm. I would characterize it as something of an anti-government okay. protest. and. Is that the same thing as far right? Like in some quarters, maybe in I other guess. quarters, less so. Yeah, Occupy Wall Street was anti-establishment, establishment, and that came from the left, I guess. Yeah, that got weird. And I'm assuming this convoy will get weird, right? I'm, the longer I'm sure many would say it's. If it was weird. summer, it would be weirder. But it's, I it's think really cold. I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, according to someone who's physically been in yeah, the midst, like it, it's already pretty, um, pretty yeah, weird. It's like, um, there's a lot of weirdness here in the US mm -hmm. uh, and characterizing something as weird doesn't necessarily mean it's not human, sympathetic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, like that's one of the big problems with today is that if you introduce me, and this is my friend Stevenson when he wrote an article about it, it's like, like he met these people or he saw them and they were, you know, keep like disrupting. Um, the the neighborhood being so, so the mm -hmm. kids couldn't sleep like da 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 
and he felt this like um, anger and derision mm. towards them. But then he, you know, he's commenting on it in a self-aware way. Mm-hmm. Is that that there's like a, a real impulse for us to regard people in a certain situation or light and then say and then feel that like anger or even worse like disgust Mm -hmm. um and and i think that dehumanization is really to be avoided in oneself if you can one of the things too it's like there are different forms of marginalization and this is one of the biggest problems in american life right now it's like there there are forms of marginalization that certain segments of society will be like oh we should care a great deal about this form of marginalization yes let's call it um Gender, race, sexual orientation, something along those lines. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they'd be like, let's take this person who might be impoverished, might be like uneducated, might have very little in the way of uh, opportunities, um, but they're from a particular part of the country and they have a particular affiliation, maybe a certain set of political beliefs. Um, and that person's marginalized too. Uh, in their way. Like if you grow up poor in Appalachia, like I'm mm-hmm. going to suggest like, you, you know, you have it rough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that type of marginalization, like not sympathetic at all. Right. In the same, to, at least to the, the same group of people. Right. I mean, recently I published an op-ed about men and boys struggling. Yeah. This is a group that is not viewed sympathetically. Right. Uh, because they're more always, powerful than women or... Even though by the numbers, numbers, tons of adversity, tons of failure, uh, you know, only 40.5% of college students, less likely to finish high school, five times more likely to be in juvenile detention. Like, you know, the the facts are very consistent and troubling. Mm -hmm. Now, I would never go so far as to say like men are marginalized in the same way. It's like like, like that. That's not the suggestion. Um, But if you were to, to show me someone who, frankly, like grew up in a poor part of the country um, and would never have a chance to advance meaningfully, um, regardless of their their race, I'd be like, yeah, that person, you know, uh, yeah. that, that person has a tough. And this is what happened to me on the presidential too, is that I would occasionally comment on, for example, the plight of like people in rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and which by the way, those communities are being decimated. Um, and, yes. and then, and people would then attack me as being like an alt-right white supremacist. And it's like, I was not aware that you could, be concerned about opiate deaths in rural communities and like all of a sudden that translates to you know white supremacy yep. and that's one of the problems with the ideological polarization they're going to be uh, extremes that come out of this mm-hmm. um and they're going to be people that find those extremes uh really really unsympathetic um and, and it's one reason why you know we should be deeply concerned about what's coming well it's in reading the way Trudeau is handling this and the Canadian government is handling this and then reading stories from folks on the ground. My thought was this seems like a lack of empathy where, okay, maybe a whole chunk of these folks don't like the government or or don't like this law and it's 20% of your country, but it's still 20% of the human beings that are citizens in your country. And the left, I thought, was supposed to be known for empathy and we're going it's going the other way well at least in canada there's also like a high uh premium placed on not uh raising a ruckus and doing all this stuff and those mm. people are you know kind of <laughs> fair canadians are nice generally speaking nicer than us uh th- this is what <laughs> my canadian friend steven suggested yeah, he was like joke. look like we we don't get mad in the same way but like w- like when people are fouling things up like there's like actually like yeah. a reservoir of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get it, I guess, right? I mean, I understand. 
They do it. They have a different relationship with their own society than um, we do. There is like a higher level of uh, trust, and and then so if, if someone's heading the other direction, then I think there's like a fall in line or stop. Whereas in the U.S., this is one of the fundamental problems. Like the trust is really really low. So if someone's like, "Hey, screw you! You're full of it," da da da, like you know, almost fifty percent of Americans would be like, "Yeah." yeah. So so it, it's a it's in our DNA in a sense that that the country started. As a res- revolution, right? It's uh, you know, we split off. I mean, I, in some way, everybody who came here was getting away from some sort of freedom. Yeah, totalitarian X Y Z, right? Some overreach and some or opportunity or upside, right? That's I mean, that's that the country story gets told to every child, right? Whether through their parents or through the school. So that's um, and that's why a lot of people in across the world they feel pride in their country. Those shared stories and these are real measurable things in many ways right so um we'll see what this happens yeah bold prediction you know we'll we'll have our own trucker convoys um that will be bigger and probably way more destructive uh and probably over nothing to do with trucking <laughs> i don't know um or if we wait long enough they'll have something to do with trucking topic that we got a lot of comments on in the YouTube section was video games and men. Um, and I was looking up numbers. Video games have been more and more appealing to women or like not that they're more appealing hold bar, but it's about 50% of gamers, 55% of gamers are men, 45% women. And that's fluctuated, but generally going up. Um, but I do think men fill a void more than women are filling a void with their with their gaming and video games so i don't know if um you grew up gaming a bit right? yes um did you use did you ever see it as part of your identity in that sense or part of your masculinity that's like a weird deep question but i'm, I'm curious of oh yeah for sure uh so i i grew up playing um atari 2600 and then coleco vision and then nintendo what's coleco vision uh, so i had atari it, it was yeah. a it was an interim okay. uh platform didn't last long um, what was your favorite arcade games? Uh, Street Fighter Two, Mortal Kombat, a lot of the combat games. So when you talk about my masculinity, part of my identity was that I was very, very good at Street Fighter Two, as one example. <laughs> like I, I would beat people. You were good. Uh, you were notorious amongst your friends for being that good. Or yes, and, and then if someone came and beat me, it was like a real blow to my ego. Oh, interesting. Um, so. Uh, and then I did play is that Warcraft. On Nintendo? What's that on? Nintendo? So Street Fighter Two is an arcade game. Oh, okay. I, I, so I, I'd actually go to arcades and play. And then Warcraft, Starcraft, the okay. the real time strategy Warcraft's games. computer, right? Um, and then it, that became World of Warcraft, right. which is a massive multiplayer online role playing right. game. That became a thing. Um, so I did I, I I played World of Warcraft enough to understand the appeal and love it, but not enough so that I, I went that deep into it. And that generation of game mm-hmm. um, then uh, ha- has become the mainstay standard where you go uh, Dota, um, which is uh, another um, uh, similar game. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone's going to yell at me. That I, I compared Dota to World of Warcraft. I, I, like, I you like know, the high level concept is similar, right? Is what you're saying that the yeah. The, RPG, so you you, you, you log on, you, you have a person who can level up progressively. You play with other real humans who mm-hmm. you interact with, um, and so it can give you community and advancement. Yes. Uh, and 
structure and uh, purpose and like a, a lot of other things. People play video games with a, in a healthy amount and they don't get addicted, which that's also a thing, but they get their better social skills, they have better uh, mental health. There's a number of things, um, which I don't, we could talk about, but that's not really the point. Keep going, sorry. No, so um, so I played enough video games to love them, and uh, there was an extended period of my life where I thought anytime I was going to have lots of time in my hands, I'd be like, oh, I'd, I'd play a bunch of video games. Got it. Um, now that uh, that idleness has not happened to me because I've just been freaking busy right. <laughs> for for like a right. um, a long time, um, but I, I felt like I got games mm -hmm. uh, to a higher degree than maybe someone who hadn't spent years playing them. Right. Um, uh, and I, I understand their deep appeal to boys and men um, because uh, they're the kind of things that give you the positive feedback that you seek mm -hmm. almost all the time. Where if I put time in, I'm going to get better. I'm going to gain stature. I'm going to get relationships. Like, uh, you know, I, I almost can't help but, uh, yeah. but, but gain those things. So, uh, whereas if you do a job, uh, you know, sometimes the positive feedback or reinforcement doesn't follow the effort. That's the crux. That's actually what I'm talking about. And that I think a lot of people are equating male idleness and it tends to be tends to be male idleness. But I guess you could have female idleness, too. Um, but idleness with gaming. Well, so this is one thing, too, that, uh, you know, it is just documented fact. Um, women deal with idleness better than men do. Correct. In terms of evidenced pro-social behaviors. Exhibit one, out of work women much more likely to go back to school than out of work men. Have you ever had anyone fight you on that? I, I think that's anecdotally oh, No, no, those, so are, those are documented facts. No, yeah, my point is like even, but like, I don't think that cuts against a narrative we all see every day. Like I think most of the guys I know when they go through like, hard yeah, times, yeah, they kind of right. self-destruct, right? And it's, or they go through a rough pot. How many well, times do you know a guy so, going through a rough patch over a girl? Well, so jobless guy. jobless guys, number one, they volunteer at lower levels than guys who have jobs. So think about yep. that. I have more time, I volunteer less. You do less, yep. Um, my video game computer use consumption goes up. Yep. My alcohol consumption goes up. Yep. My um, levels of drug use and gambling go up. Yep. So pretty much any social ill you can identify is going to go up. If you give us more time. If you give us more time. <laughs> God. There's a world where video games are massively positive because they're keeping men from becoming idle in a sense. Like I have a number of friends from, you know, a couple, I'll speak one in particular. Like he's a, he's a successful teacher. His wife works. He's got a bunch of kids. They take a couple of vacations a year. He's got a pretty good life. But I imagine like the job is like, remotely fulfilling like it's fine but he loves the game and that gives him his own like different things he's not getting in the real world right where it's like different type of community new people the sense of development and purpose and goal setting and things like that in my opinion you'd rather have my friend like that focusing on a video game than trying to get those sense of purpose and accomplishment and goal setting in some of the more destructive ways he could be spending his time he'd probably be gambling which could be gambling it could be drinking I mean, look, he could get the same amount of fulfillment with a Bible study or a group of guys hanging out, watching sports and other things, right? He could. He could also get them from awful things, right? Or just not get them. Or just not. Well, then I. And my, then if my he doesn't get them, it would, then it would then come it out would, in certain ways. Yeah, right? yeah, um, it probably would. And I think, I don't think we talk about that enough, right? Um, because I think there's an there's a connotation that if you're playing video games you're not being productive and i know that i play sports video games like i or 
right, brother and that I. That was one of my favorite things to do when I was uh, living yeah. with my roommate here in New York. We'd come back and play NBA 2K. Yes. In college, I played FIFA so all the time. I play Madden now. I love it. My brother loves FIFA. My brother and I, so my growing up, my brother and I, we love video games. We were like you know, boys, kids in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, so like Wayne Gretzky's 3D hockey. And then uh, it was one of my first, like, I think that was N64. My brother loved Donkey Kong, all, all Nintendo games. And mainly he was exceptional at most Mario games. So there was a period of time where he like had a summer off and he was globally ranked in Mario Kart, like on the Wii. Um, That's crazy. Like ridiculous. He's a year younger than me. <laughs> he was like 22 when he did it. Um, but, um, and we still have fun playing video games every once in a while. But um, if you're just playing like that, like either Mario racing or like FIFA or stuff, you there's an argument that that's kind of idleness because it's not a lot of social interaction. There's not a lot of team building. It's very different than Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or some of these others. And I think we probably should understand the difference um, because you can't have guys just rotting. Some of them maybe have a Twitch stream and have found a way to monetize it, but most don't, I imagine, by the numbers. Nope. Um, is the solution for these types of men either better video games, right? If they're just like, shitting around on FIFA all the time. Um, is it better for them to be playing a different type of community game to get some purpose and fulfillment? Or should we be happy that these men are, I mean, frankly, not shooting up schools and not going into dark YouTube rabbit holes and getting polarized and I think if you play a, um, a game like FIFA that's self-contained and isn't like part of this massive universe, I think it's just as healthy. Um, in, in a way, it might be... Um, like a lower commitment because you just go, you you know, That's bang, bang yeah, out some I mean, matches and then you like, you know, you go back. Whereas if you do join one of these massive uh, multiplayer online role playing games, it can be a real commitment. You know, you, it, That's like, true. you, you can't it, like half ass it. Yeah, yeah. You dip your toe in and then you're behind everyone else. Like they're all super powered and you're like, oh, so you know, true. and then when people find you, you're they're like, why don't you have any upgrades? Look at and this you're new. Like, oh, I yeah. suck. Yeah, and, like and, they're, like, uh, and they're sucking your wallet too because it's you got to pay for the upgrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, this, so, so, so I, I think different games suit different ends. Um, I, I do think that um, you could uh, design games to be able to serve certain goals. Mm -hmm. um, right now, the the like a well designed game gets you hooked um, because you are developing relatively quickly and directly yeah uh, i i think there's probably a sweet spot in terms of the consumption of these games there is a tendency to overconsume mm -hmm. for certain folks you know china has just cracked down on the hours where like yeah, they limit it right they, they limit it in a way that you know just people here would be like that that's crazy i think the rule is that you're only allowed to game play for something like three hours a week i mean uh, someone can look Let's it look up this up which, by the way, is essentially the polar opposite of what was going on. Like people were, I think, gaming for you know fifty hours a week, and then it just somehow got very, very quickly turned around. Imagine working in that industry. They announced this at the end of August to limit gamers under the age of eighteen to playing only between the hours of eight p.m. and nine p.m. on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Oh yeah, it's three and hours. I got that right. Holidays. Nice. So that's for minors. So that's under the age of eighteen. Um, it sounds like after you turn 18, then all bets are off. I'm, I'm not sure yeah, if that's look, true. Yeah. Here in the U.S., it's just whatever serves the market's interests yeah. is the major default. And then if you get in the way of that, then everyone gets mad. Um, so right now, obviously, the game gaming companies would very much dislike having a, a limit on how much miners can play. Oh, yeah. Um, so is there a sweet spot? 
I think, you know, I mean, uh, I, it, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Um, is probably on one extreme where there are a lot of minors, I'm sure, that are right. addicted to, to games in a way that oh, man. is likely uh, making it less likely that they go out and succeed and prosper in the yep. real world. I'm sure some of these games replace certain parental figures. Um, if you have a lot of you have a lot of kids, broken homes, and like the video game becomes the, either their community or where they learn right and wrong and other things they're not learning from mom or dad. Um, do you have advice for parents? What you've done for your boys to help them navigate, let's call it the addictiveness of video games or screen time or things like that. So first, let me say I'm not uh, the role model on this where my, my kids love them some Roblox <laughs> and uh, that they, they would prize it over any other way to spend their time. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that the best thing you could do in an ideal world would be to uh, spend spend time with them in pursuits that get them out and about and develop yeah. confidence in different ways. Um, but that's unrealistic for a lot of parents and families because yeah. you're working, you're busy, uh, you know, like the easiest thing is just to mm -hmm. give the kid a screen and have them. And by the way, they're happier with you. And so you're like, yeah, and they're then, quiet, you, you know, yeah. and then you, you know what you do? You turn on your own screen and you're like, oh, no, I guess no, I'll no. catch up on, uh, you know, some stuff. You said this on the trail that parents are outgunned. Um, my my parents used to, um, my dad was an engineer, so it was very systematic, but we used to have uh, like reward systems. So if I it was it's simple. Sometimes if I read for 30 minutes or if I cleaned the bathrooms or if I did X, Y, Z chores, then I would earn a certain amount of TV time, which was good. But the for me, my brother and I it was like, we tried to get my parents where they would like forget to enforce the limit. So it's like, oh, you get 30 minutes of TV time. And if my mom got distracted with something else, I'd squeeze that into 45 or an hour um, or try. Uh, and that's the hardest part is like it's parenting. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, it's like it's uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. And to you like, we're wired too in this way. You know, you want your kid to have some screen time and uh, you need some as well. So it's tough to set a good example too. It is tough. So the, the single biggest thing you should be pushing for yourself or your kids or whomever, loved ones, is just a sense of moderation. Mm. Um, now the, the, the ideal thing, and this would happen to you or to me, um, where the real world demands stuff of you and of me. And so you're like getting pulled in that way. So if right. it was not realistic for me to frankly, like, you know, play games for like uh, X hours a day, you right. know, like uh, um, now because I have all these demands. Yeah, now, so if you were to get rid of all these demands, then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh. So, right. so, so, so right in now. many ways, the, the challenge is to make the real world more demanding of a draw, you have more relationships, more needs and, and whatnot, right. or at least in tandem with the yeah. gaming and, and the virtual world. It's uh, and the upside of the metaverse, theoretically, right? Yeah, you know, there are, and to your point, I mean, th this isn't like a pure good, pure bad. It's just like, mm. can it be something that there's too much of? Yes, um, you know, like uh, if you can moderate something um, and make it a part of your life the way your friend has or, mm -hmm. or, or whatnot, I think that's reasonable goal for us to set. Yeah. I think it's something interesting. If men aren't getting that sort of purpose, their, their reason to well, be... Well, here's what the studies have shown. Yeah. The studies have shown that playing games is awesome. Um, <laughs> okay, and, good studies. And that, and that you're happy playing the games. 
But the studies have shown that your satisfaction with uh, playing the games declines in your mid to late 20s. And then it starts to become less positive and wholesome and fun. And there are a lot of people that are moving on. And by the way, like I've seen this in people I'm close to. Um, and the main reason for your all of a sudden clicking in and being like, okay, like I'm in the game last. This happened to me too. Like I was gaming, gaming, and then eventually I was like, oh, no. And you know, like the single biggest thing for me was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and date a woman, find or a relationship. Yeah. Um, and there dating. was an instinctive part of me that was like, I don't know if they're going to be into the gaming thing. I mean, some women do accommodate it. Yeah. So it drove me in a particular direction at, at that point. And so the studies have shown that this is a very consistent pattern. The social perks and incentives to not be gaming all the time are pretty high at a certain age. Right? Uh, and, and so that's the threshold time where if someone then ventures out into the real world and let's say they find something completely unwelcoming and inhospitable, then they'll be like, all right, fuck that. And then go back to gaming. And right. then and then the gaming satisfaction will also decline over time. And then, you know, like th this is not a great track. Right. Um, when they go out into the world and they're like, okay, hey, what's out here? Like, you know, do I have opportunities, relationships, progression? And they get that, then they're like, okay, like I can, I can follow this. So yes. when that boy or man reaches out and tries to head down that direction, uh, what do they find? Yes. And if they don't find, I mean, if they put themselves out there and they find themselves rejected or embarrassed or question their masculinity or man, manhood, whatever it is, they fail, then it seems a lot safer to go back to video games. Sure. Like, that doesn't mean some of these video games aren't like productive and helpful and they can learn certain things, but it's also like over time that they have diminishing marginal returns, right? It's not great. It's not a great outcome for... Yeah, I had a chapter on this that if you want, if you're looking for this, like the article is posted somewhere, but yeah. there's a chapter in the War on Normal people called Video Games and the Parenthetical Male Meaning of Life. Yep. It is going to be a growing force in uh, people's lives, uh, particularly here in America. You know, we just have to try and make it as positive as possible, make the real world as positive as possible, and make the metaverse as positive as possible. Right. I mean, the way I see it, you have to give them better options than video games. Or you have to make the video games connect to real life more, right? You might have some for-profit incentives for the latter there. And again, if there's a loved one or you yourself, just try and um, play in moderation. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like you play. Amen. You know, my test when I was gaming, have I been frozen in position for so long that I have a body part that hurts? <laughs> Very logical of you. Yeah. Yeah, I have the same. I um, Or am I hurting myself tomorrow by playing today? It's like a big, and it's the delayed gratification. It's the marshmallow test for kids that I think is important, right? You know, I heard this one where it's. Yeah, yeah, we delayed I gratification. Me, I give you I, one marshmallow now or two in five minutes. Tell you, for the test. for those of you at home who remember this stuff, it's fine, you know, no one does, whatever. Uh, I had a callus on my left hand from doing the uh, Are You Can Street Fighter 2 motion so much because it, it involves a joystick and a semicircle to the right. <laughs> I did it so many times. Going up that I, I developed a callus below my left middle finger. And I'm, I'm touching it right now to see if it's still there. It's still there? I mean, I maybe I should have you touch Very, it to see. No, dude, I, dude, I think I, it's I, still there. <laughs> I mean, you can see it comparably, the left to the right All hand. All right, look at that, man. That's your video game scars. My video game callus. It. Point yeah. of pride, man. Point of pride. I fucking ruled as <laughs> Ken, Ryu, but I was uh, disconcertingly 
effective Balrog, which totally screwed everyone up because they were like, Balrog's terrible. But you found his... But I, I found a way to win with Balrog. Where I'm just going to geek out for a minute. Please. So, okay, so Balrog is the boxer, not a good character. Okay. So if you were playing like Ken or Ryu, you could generally, you think you could just like fireball him into submission. But what he did have is he had a power where he could actually uh, spin through a fireball and punch you if you timed it perfectly. Um, it's difficult to time. I was very good you with him, but I still timing. couldn't end up. But uh, you know when I could time it? The beginning of the round. So, ah, so the, the Early on. So, so the beginning of the round, I would hold all three punch buttons down, and then whoever I'm fighting, nine times out of ten, they're going to do a fireball. Um, so, so they do the <laughs> fireball, and I time through it. So then I punch them, and then they're just like, what just happened? Mm. I just did like a Knock customary opening, <laughs> and I just got punched – so then their next move is like they don't fireball again because they're now afraid right, I'm just going to do, do it again. Right. So then they jump in the air to do like a jumping kick, which is like the next most uh, uh, like basic, basic move, effective right. thing. So this is how I would And then I'm, and I'm expecting it. So so uh, so then You're the worst. You're so like then the I did like uh, so then I did a rushing play. uppercut that would punch them out of the air. And so at this point, then they're they're like you know often like half the time. I'd be able to get a third shot in, and because I'd hit them three times in succession, they they'd be dazed for a second, and then you you so so like the rounds like two thirds over, um, and then the rest of it you know I'm just like effective enough to do it. Well, the other thing is that the guy had the equivalent of the guile sonic boom attack, where if you did like the left hold right punch, he did a punch that took a little bit of damage, that you know even if you blocked it. So I'd just be like doing that over and over and just like screwed people up. So it just it does a number on someone's confidence so bad if you I can love beat that them you as, remember as this so vividly. Was this, this is your teenage years or is this? This is college, man. Yeah. I'd got to go to college and I'd just play Street Fighter Two in the student center. <laughs> it was mostly Asian dudes. Anyone who is my age knows what I'm talking about. Most mostly Asian dudes. There there was this really uh, good black dude with dreads who'd come and he'd play and he was excellent. He, he would beat me half the time, but there's like no shame in losing to him. Is it like he was really is good. it like you know basketball where like you if you lose you get off the machine? Like oh yeah, yeah, totally. Sort of so thing. you play credits and then if you're really good you play all day. You stay and then people just keep chum challenging you. I love that you're dude. We had you and I had such different college experiences, man. I don't think I played Street Fighter once. No, I don't think. Well, I, I mean, dude, I'm like X years older than you. I mean, I went to school between. I'm just uh, kidding. I went to school in the um, like early to mid '90s. I will say I played Super Smash Bros. and I did love that. And I was very good with Star Fox because he had that he had that move that you could like you would jump and then do like a real quick direction, like oh, yeah. left to right. And I was very good at like I was just jumping and knowing it was coming and mid jump. I just direct right at him and hit him. And then he had a pretty good shield, pretty good gun. Didn't think we'd be talking about this. Very exciting. Glad you knew the. Glad you have calluses from your video game. My Street Fighter is him. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. OK, <laughs> with that is folks, it is it anyway? Exciting stuff. From Andrew and Zach today. Yes, I'm proud of, I'm proud of us. I'm so pumped about. Out. I'm pumped about Lobby join Three. The you can join a Discord without having an NFT. So we'll tweet about it. Lobby3.io. Click the link. It'll be fun. See you Monday. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. We don't.